Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 122 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, I've been excited about this episode for a long time. Actually, you can trace this back to around the time when we launched this podcast. It was the summer of 2014. I was on a long flight and I picked up a book that I had heard good buzz about. It was a new release called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Uh, Essentialism really rocked my world. I mean, I read it. It was a seven-hour flight. I read it on the flight. I thought, man, I'm going to make some more changes. I think I was like, 60 to 70% on my way to being an essentialist by the time I had picked up the book. And hopefully I'm like 90% of the way there now. I mean, it was just, it was one of the best books on how to manage all the competing demands of life and leadership I've ever read. And I thought, wouldn't it be great one day to interview Greg McEwen? Well, here we are. Fast forward a couple of years and Greg is my guest on the podcast. And Essentialism, great episode for January because we're going to talk all about the disciplined pursuit of less. Now, Greg is also a man of faith. And so we spend the first probably 10 minutes of the podcast talking about his faith and how he weaves his theology into that. This is really a business-based book, but it was a fascinating conversation. If you've read Essentialism, I think you're going to love hearing from Greg. If you haven't, I would encourage you to pick up the book. It is probably on my top 20 list of all times of business books I've read, maybe maybe top 10. It's, it's, it's incredible. Really, really good for you. So uh, you want to dive into that interview. Also, just to let you know, uh, if you're thinking about time management and energy management and priority management, my course, my productivity course, The High Impact Leader, comes back next week for the final time in a while. So if you haven't jumped in on The High Impact Leader yet, it's a course that you can download, do at your own pace, but it's only available for a limited time. This is your opportunity in 2017, the first part of 2017, to get The High Impact Leader. It is all about getting time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. So if you want the dates, here they are. Next Monday, January 16th to Thursday, January 19th, The High Impact Leader registration will be open then it's going to close. So mark those dates. And if you want to get on the waiting list, just go to thehighimpactleader.com. Also want to say, hey, thanks to all of you for the shout outs over the last 10 days. We kicked off 2 million downloads on this podcast with a big giveaway for the first 10 days of 2017, which ends today. And uh, thanks for the shout outs. Thanks for the kindness. And we also want to thank EA Help. They've been a sponsor of this podcast for almost a year now. And I needed an assistant a year ago when my assistant went on maternity leave. And like you, I I manage an awful lot of stuff. And I'm like, man, I don't have time to train people. And like, I need someone who can hit the ground running. And so I turned to EA Help and uh, they provided me with a woman named Sarah Horn, who has been spectacular. I mean, high, high, high caliber leader and has helped us honestly through an incredible year of growth, both on this podcast, on my blog, with my writing and everything. So if you need some help, in 2017, go to EA Help. And you can just go to eahelp.com. They will be able to provide you a virtual assistant from as little as five hours a week all the way to multiple full-time assistants. Totally up to you. 
So anyway, long story short, if you haven't checked out EA Help and you want some help or you want a quote, just go to them at eahelp.com. So that's what's going on right now on sort of our channels. What's going on on your channel? How's the year going so far for you? You can let me know. Hit me up on Twitter at C. Newhoff, on Facebook at C. Newhoff, or on Instagram at Kerry Newhoff. You'll find me there. And uh, I'd just love to hear from you. And of course, everything we talk about today will be in the show notes. You can go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 122. And if you don't know how to spell that, just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. Everything will be there. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's dive right into my conversation with author Greg McEwen. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being with us on the podcast today. I am really honored to have you. It's really my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I got to tell you, I start a lot of books and honestly don't finish them, but I had yours in my hand when I was heading on a trip to Europe. And literally, by the time we landed, it was finished and I couldn't put it down. It was fantastic. Thank you so much. That's such a compliment. Thank you. Given it out to a lot of friends, talked about it, and uh, really excited about just, you know, talking about the ideas that uh, you're building your life and your leadership around these days. So you came by the subject of pursuing less pretty honestly. What were like some of the personal factors that led you to get focused on essentialism, you know, or the disciplined pursuit of less? Uh, A really important experience in hindsight was when I received an email from my boss at the time that said Friday would be uh, a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. <laughs> That's seriously <laughs> an email. Is it really? Oh, yes. Oh, oh it's wow. really an email. And I remember when I was recalling the experience thinking, did I, did I just remember it? And, and I went back and read the email. And uh, so it's exactly what it said. I need you to be at this client meeting. Uh, and, you know, maybe they were you know, maybe they were joking at some level, maybe. Uh, but whatever the, you know, the real context, Friday came along. Uh, we were in the hospital. Uh, I, my daughter had been born very, very late Friday, I mean, Thursday evening. And so we're still in the hospital. We're still recovering. And uh, instead of being totally focused on that pristine, essential moment, I'm being pulled in different directions. And I'm trying to do both. Really, that's the, the the thing. And, you know, to my shame, I decided to go to the client meeting. And afterwards, uh, I remember my boss saying, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. Right. And I'm not sure that they did. I'm not sure <laughs> the look on their faces evinced that sort of confidence. But even, even if they did, surely I had made a fool's bargain. Hmm. Uh, I had... And I learned from the experience that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And uh, that, that has really given me fire for the deed to understand better uh, what people decide and why they decide what they do. And that's, uh, you know, the, the book Essentialism uh, grew out of that uh, experience and that curiosity. Yeah, and you know, you certainly don't win points at, points at home when you're on your phone as your child is being born and your wife is recovering from labor, do you? Um, you know, answering email in the hospital room. <laughs> well, you don't, and this is really goes to the essence of all of this: is that we live in a world of trade-offs, hmm. and we didn't make it that way. I mean, God created the earth; He created the life that we have; He created time; He created a set of constraints 
in our lives that would require us to make choices. And so this, this comes before my book, before my experience, before any of us, there are trade-offs and yep. we must, we are not allowed not to make them. Hmm. We can only, we can make bad trade-offs. <laughs> we right. can try, we can try and do a bit of everything uh, in which case the trade-off is that we'll end up sort of stretched a bit too thin at work, at home, at church, everywhere. Uh, we'll make a millimeter progress in a million directions. Like these will, maybe we'll have burnout even. Like these mm-hmm. will be the natural consequences of not deliberately making trade-offs. So we're, we're definitely going to make them. There's no way out of this world without making trade-offs. The question is, is do we make them compulsively uh, or do we make them consciously? Right. And... Uh, and, and, and this is, this is to me, seems to be the, the real work of life. A premise of essentialism and sort of your school of thought is that you really can't have it all, correct? Well, I think you can do anything, but not everything. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look, if, you, if, if we get just immediately to sort of uh, the, the, the heart of this, it's, it's, yeah. it's nice to have a conversation with with people who are so involved in the church. And so, 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 uh, so we can use, we, we can tap into a, a broader set of, of sources and a common understanding. I mean, just think of Jesus life mm-hmm. and think, because to me, every time I think about this or say it, it is breathtaking to me what he didn't do. Yes. It is breathtaking. He all think of all the people he didn't heal. Yeah. Think of all the people he didn't share the gospel with. Think of all the people that that never even met him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it should take our breath away to think that 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 this one perfect man should not have tried to do it all. Yeah, and he did it all in a context of three years as well. Like, why wouldn't you start at thirteen, right? <laughs> Knowing that this is going to meet an end. You're, and how you're how, right. how how. How true is that? And, and, and how much time did he spend figuring out what his father wanted him to do? You know, when he's up for 40 days and 40 nights, when he's fasting and praying, what's he doing? Mm-hmm. You know, he's creating space to learn and discern what is the mission and what isn't the mission. What's the essential intent and what isn't it? So that he is obligated to do only what his father sent him to do and not to do what everyone else is doing to not do. I mean, think of this to not do what everyone in the church of the time is saying he ought yeah, to you're do. Right. You're right. Right. He's, he's, you know, all of us have had experiences where somebody believes we ought to be doing something and uses uh, scripture to support why we're not doing a good enough job and endless numbers of things. Uh, and, and what I'm saying is to feel really judged. Right. But but he was too <laughs> in in like an immense way. So <laughs> That's a good but point. he still felt no obligation to do that. So I think that our obligation in life is not to do everything perfect now. Right. It is to do the, what his will is for us for his reasons mm. in his timing. This is the obligation of life. That's a far different sets of criteria than just what everyone's doing and try to do it all sure. and try to do it now. And this is, this is, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's an easier path, right? but it's, it's definitely not everything path. 
what I've heard from church leaders is honestly, in the name of faith, it's like, well, God loves everybody. Therefore, I have to love everybody. And therefore, I have to do everything. It's actually because I'm a Christian, because of my faith, that I feel obligated to help everybody. And I don't feel like I can say no ever. And I mean, people get burnt out. People end up leaving ministry because of it. But essentialism would say absolutely not. That is that is not how you should live. Help, help me understand that tension a bit. Well, first of all, what I think people are describing now, we're not talking about we're not talking about motive problem. Um, okay. People people have great motives. People have people want to do God's work. They want to build the church. They want to make a difference. That that's what caused them to it in the first place. Is we're not talking about a motivation issue, but I think what's happened is that I think that good intent has been hijacked by an idea that turns out to be neither true nor doctrinal nor biblical. And that is this idea of you have to do it all. Hmm. That, that's not that's not biblical. That's not true. First hmm. of all, the one reason it's not true is because it's not possible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so there's that. Uh, but so it's, it's that. just a lie. So I think that I think that it's it's a very clever, inaccurate. You know. Um, yeah. I think it's. I think the, the devil's the author of it. <laughs> you have to do it all. You, you, you know, in fact, I watched a, 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 a sort of a TED-esque type, type of talk recently uh, called The Perfect Lie. And mm. it's all about how the devil twists a good intent to live a good life, to live a Christian life, to, 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 and twists it to, I have to have it all perfect. It has to be just so. I have to have just, you know, controlled, my, my life has to be controlled in a certain way. And and this just this just isn't actually the way of the essentialist. It's it's not. I mean, so the language of essentialism is a disciplined pursuit of less right. versus an undisciplined pursuit of more. But in the context of our conversation today, we should we should tilt that language. It's a discipled pursuit of less. Hmm. Hmm. And that and that there is so much biblical support for what I just said. But it's a, it's a biblical path less traveled by. Wow, that's that's so fascinating. That this is spiritual it's, at its heart. It's spiritual. Absolutely. I, I I don't I don't even know how to to operate in life without seeing it through just such a lens. Right. But 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 if you read if you read like like let's just say take the New Testament. If you read the New Testament beginning to end with a non-essentialist lens, meaning you think you have to do everything, right? right? So so meaning you're bringing that perspective to the conversation, then you'll find evidence to support it. Mm. Because y- you're pre-wired to see those things. Right. I got to go heal everybody. I got to go visit all the sick. I got to be at every prison. I've got to love all my neighbors, every one of them. Everyone all the time. And, and that love means doing. Right. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not against love being action, but there's a certain set of what I would call modern Western values included in them, consumerism, corporatism. These things have, have created a certain kind of filter for us so that when we're reading scripture, we're not just reading what is written and we're not right. reading what is intended. We're reading our own lens is shaping what is even heard, which verses get emphasized, which stories get told and how they are told is all pre-shaped by the culture that we're in. So if we 
if we become more aware of that, like mm. fish who discover water last, right? Like we suddenly right. become aware that there's waters everywhere, that there's this idea that has been, like malware has been entered into every aspect of our, of our lives, including the church, then, uh, then we can start to go back to, like I remember Philip Yancey once did this, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, the great, the great um, Christian, one well, of the great Christian authors yeah. of our time. And, and he said, okay, let me pretend I've never read the, the Bible before. I'm going to start at the beginning and just know nothing about Jesus. Know nothing about it. Try to try to read it afresh. And what he said, the conclusion of reading the, the, the scriptures again with that in mind is that he found a Jesus so different than the one that he'd grown up with, that it was powerful for him. He said, he said, here is a man so different than the slightly effeminate view that sometimes is given, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, especially in, you know, if you, if you go through the cathedrals in, uh, as, as I've done to some of them through Europe, uh, and look at some of the paintings through the Middle Ages, there's a, there's a very particular aspect of a kind of, uh, you, you know, as I say, kind of, kind of effeminate, kind of that certainly weaker, yeah. Um, in some nice, sense, but non- not strong, and certainly non-emotional type of a person. But what he found, what Philip Yancey found in the New Testament, was this incredibly evocative, you know, uh, highly surprising. Um, he didn't use the word bombastic, but I suppose that's kind mm. of the, the mm-hmm. spirit of it. Person, in a similar way, if we read the scriptures through an essentialist lens. It will surprise. Okay. We will we will see some extraordinary things. We will see trade-offs being made from beginning to end, really strong trade-offs. I mean, of course, there's the there's the the Mary and Martha story, right? That, that that's one of the easy ones, right? Um, you know, yeah, so so taken with doing so many different things, and he says, "No, look, you know, your sister's choosing choosing the one thing that is needful." That 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 is she's she's choosing me. Wow, <laughs> that's what it's about. What a what a what a bold thing to say. Mm-hmm. It's not about all this stuff. Choose me. Look wow. at me. Not at all this other stuff. Not at everyone's expectation. Love God first, mm-hmm. then love other people. Oh, that order matters so much. Yes, that order matters so much. Now it matters because you can only have one priority. By definition, the mm-hmm. word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. It was singular. Yes. The priority, the first, the the the, 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 the thing before all other things, thing. Right. That's and, it. And, and, for, and we have a list for, of top 20 priorities, right? <laughs> right. Well, this is exactly the this is exactly the thing. And 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 what, what does it say that we think we can have 20 before all other things, things? Yeah. So let There's me. Such, such a nonsense. I know a lot of leaders have read Essentialism. It's a, I don't know, it's a best-selling book, and and you wrote it. I really appreciate the faith lens because I think often the way we interpret, you know, our understanding of what Christianity is competes against the very essence of Christianity. And Essentialism is written from a business standpoint, but it's really it's a life book, right? If you had to define for those leaders who haven't read it. What is, at its heart is essentialism? What's the like two sentence or single paragraph definition of essentialism in, in your mind? Essentialism is the perpetual, continual pursuit of what matters most, the elimination of what doesn't, and creating a system that makes 
execution of those few things that we've really identified, uh, it, it makes execution of those as easy as possible. Hmm. So how is this different from time management? Because as I read the book and tried to live out the principles, I'm like, yeah, this is not just time management. This is something radically different. Well, it's certainly not time management as it's been taught previously, because it's not about fitting more stuff in. It's not doing more stuff. It's doing more of the right things. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's not about efficiency, right? It's, it's, it's about creating space to even figure out what is essential. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, that's a non-trivial task. Oh yeah, and and if we don't take the time to do it, we will be beaten up by all the stuff, by the latest email, by the latest request, and so we're spinning our wheels and we're rushing around, and we don't, we can't say with confidence, I can hear God's voice in my life and I'm pursuing it. Right. So we, so 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 when we when we're in that situation, and I think a lot of us are off center in that way, uh, then then we can spend, we can spin our wheels doing the trivial many mm-hmm. tasks, requests, the obligations, things we think people are expecting. And, and, and also not just spin our wheels doing, but spin our wheels with tremendous stress. Right. Um, because we cannot do it all, but we feel like we have to. You know, that, that's, that's one approach. The way of the essentialist is, is, truly revolutionary in comparison to that. Yeah, it was for me. It's it's radical, and we'll get into some of its radical things, but let's put ourselves in the shoes of, say, an average listener, a church leader, maybe not an in, entirely huge church. I mean, obviously, if you've got 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people, you've figured out some of the essentialism on your own one way or the other. But let's say, you know, you got 150, 200 people. They all know you. You feel like you have a personal relationship with them. You're young. You're trying to raise a family. And you live in an age where basically the world is in your hand in your cell phone. And you're getting texts, emails. People have direct access to you on social media. And everybody wants a piece of you right? Which is a pretty typical scenario. And you're tired and you're not getting enough sleep and your day off is never your day off. How do you Uh, even begin to figure out what to focus on? How do you figure out what is going to, what do I need to focus on in my life? What is going to take our mission and our church forward? I've got a thousand competing voices and I don't even have enough time to breathe or go to the bathroom. What do you say to that leader? Well, I sympathize, first of all. Mm. Um, I think that uh, it's real what you just described. Every word of that's real. And, and the answer, I, I, it, I, owe, I owe such a person the, uh, the respect of saying, of not giving simplistic answers to that. Right. Because it, I, I recognize it, it is not simply a matter of going, well, just say no to a bunch of people and, and lose your job and put yourself first (laughs) so that you, so you burn relationships and you, and you hurt the the, the culture you're trying to create and you're struggling to build the momentum that you want to build. I mean, I've made those mistakes in applying essentialism in, in, in not understand, in getting caught up in a counterfeit for essentialism. Um, essentialism is not noism. Mm, It's not about saying no any more than, then like, of course, saying yes to everyone and everything without really thinking about it is not going to work. 
Right. But saying no to everyone and everything without really thinking about it is similarly not going to You have no friends, work. no job, no life. <laughs> At the end of the day, if you just do that harshly. So, right? so, so that's right. So, so I think that what we have to do is we have to, we, we have to really look to God first. Hmm. And in a sense, we say, look, this is his problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like, he created us. He gave commandments. He knows how to do it. Let's get the order right. Let's put God mm. first. Make sure that He's the priority. So that we are taking that time in prayer to be sure we're hearing His voice. To be sure that we aren't just doing our own thing. Now, there's a few ways of doing that. I mean, I think, I think that. Um, I mean, I remember years ago talking to somebody uh, in in a church situation, and they said, "Look, I hope that you've." Uh, this is when I was on a full-time church mission years ago in Toronto. And they said, look, you, you, let's hope that, basically said, let's hope that you've really had a good, calm, you know, good night's rest and good scripture say this morning because you're not going to have that much over the next few months because I've been asked to be uh, a leader within the mission. Hmm. And I just believed them. You know, I just was like, <laughs> okay, well, that's that's how it is. And so for a while, I really was operating in that same basis. So in justification of service to many, many people, I wasn't sleeping as much as I was supposed to. And I wasn't right. studying the scriptures as much as I was supposed to. And so it cut off kilter because after a while, you're, you're just you're still you're as busy as you ever were, but you're not mm-hmm. sure that you're actually doing the right things anymore. And so I remember when we started to tilt it back, got proper sleep, started you know, going back to the word, making sure that we were hearing his voice first. Like this matters. I think that if we put him first, yeah. then lots of these non-essential items will naturally fall out of our lives. So that would mean like you don't not have time to do your devotion. Is, does that, you, that make you, sense? Yeah. Well, that, yes. I mean, there were two things. There's, there's, there's sleep. Right. And, there's div- and then there's time for devotion. Yeah, essentialists you- sleep more. Talk about that. Because most people who are run off their feet, they just cut an hour out of their day. You've got a whole section in your book about sleep. How is it that people who accomplish more sleep more? Well, this is, this is based in good research, right? This is Eric's Anderson, uh, Anderson's, uh, uh, Anders Ericsson, excuse me, uh, mm-hmm. his research on what distinguishes top performers from good performers. And he found that that the most important thing was number of hours of focused work on what you're doing. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. This is where Malcolm Gladwell got the idea of the, you know, phrased it, the 10,000 hour rule. Yep. Um, but the number two most correlated item explaining the difference between good performance and, and breakthrough performance was number of hours slept. The mm. top performers simply slept more than the average performers and the good performers. What, what, what does it mean? They both slept more at night and they took more naps. Yeah. Why does it work? What's the justification for such a logic? It's that it's that by it wasn't just number of hours in practice, like it is a musician, for example. It's not just the number of hours you do; it's the number of quality hours you do. Right. And so, when you'd slept well, you were able to practice better hours, more concentrated, and that is also true in in the ministry as well. What we what we need is not just more hours spent. It's, mm. it's more hours wisely spent. It's more hours of wisdom. Uh, I, I, remember, I remember talking to a church leader years ago, and they were staying up so late in, in, in the evenings, and they were spending time counseling people into the early hours of the morning. This, this leads to unwise action. When we'd sleep mm-hmm. four hours a night, 
we are we are the same physiologically and psychologically as if we're drunk. Wow. And we would never say that. We would never say, oh, such a great church leader. They're just drunk all the time. It's marvelous. <laughs> the way they make decisions, yeah. the way they discern. But that's what it's attacking. Non-essentialism, its first victim is our ability to discern. That's so true. I think I've got three to five good hours in me a day. I mostly write these days or do this. And like, there's a certain point in the day at which my brain just doesn't work anymore. Is that like just me or is that medically true? It's medically true. And, and, and in fact, there's one of, one of the pieces of research that I thought was most interesting was a piece that was done in, in, in Israel, as I recall it. It's a while since I read it. And it showed that you you much better off to be tried by a judge in the morning than in the afternoon. Because, oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because in the morning... You you've got uh, you know better discernment of the of the nuances of the situation, and so more likely to 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 take into all all the different intricacies. By the afternoon, they're exhausted. They're just making blunt decisions. Well, okay, well you're going to jail, and I guess it's for this. Yeah, and I'm hungry, and I want to go home. So yeah, exactly. It's Mm -hmm. it's called it's called decision fatigue. Right. And 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 it's very real, and we have to face this, and 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 again take it back to God. No, look, I don't have enough. I don't have the answers to this. I've only got this many hours. Now, of course, one of his answers can be to give you more energy. He can mm. enable you to do more than you could do before. That's one solution. But it is not the only solution. And it's not going to happen at the violation of the laws of nature, which he set up, which is you're going to get two hours of sleep a night, right? That's not how you yeah. get more energy. You get more yeah, by going to bed. That's right. He, he, he's, he, I, I, I can think of it's very few. If no, in fact, there's just no, there's no example to me of God walking outside of the laws that He created. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and so, in some sense, in some sense, I think He's governed by those laws Himself, uh, and 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 creates and and create makes them clear to us in various ways. Right. But I, I I think there is eternal law. I mean, certainly Cicero thought this way. A lot of the early philosophers believed that. You know that, that there's eternal law that exists independent of everyone and everything, uh, and and so we we must abide by those laws. And I think that essentialism is really saying there are principles and laws that will govern actually making a higher contribution. Right. And you don't have to pay attention to them, but if you don't, you won't make a higher contribution. And and so for people that are already starting to be successful. The way to be able to break through to the next level of success is greater discernment and thinking about things differently. Okay, so let's go there because really it is a process of elimination, right? That's what you're looking at in essentialism. You're discarding good to get to great or to exponential returns. Um, Tell us what that process looks like. How do you know what to discard from your life? Obviously, you're going to pray about it. You're going to seek God's will. But practically speaking, give us some examples of how that's worked in your life or, you know, you've got tons of stories in the book. Some of the the stories of like, well, I got rid of this and then, man, this opened up so much in, in my life. Can you walk us through that process? Well, first of all, let's use, the, let's use a, a helpful metaphor. So, so if we think about everything, both the problem and the solution, um, you can see it all in your closet. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Uh, closets tend to get over overwhelmed with too many clothes. We can't find anything. It doesn't. It's not a space of joy. It's a space of stress. Yes. Uh, and we think to ourselves, "Oh, if I just had a larger closet, that would solve the problem." 
uh, until we do get a larger closet, then we realize that isn't the real problem. Uh, you know, it's like it's like discovering that, that you have been at both scenes of the crimes uh, <laughs> and you're like, oh, it might be it might be something I'm doing. <laughs> and so so that's the problem that, 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 that you know, and then, and then within that same context, maybe we go into the closet and we say, OK, well, I've, I've had enough. It's just too stressful in here. I'm going to take out an item and we take an item off the shelf and we look at it and there's something almost mysterious or magical happens in that moment. And um, we look at that item and we, we sort of look at it and we think, well, we you know, it, 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 might, it, might, it might fit me again. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it might come back. My mom gave in, that to me. I can't right. throw it out. <laughs> it, it, might, it might come back into fashion again. Yeah. Um, it, you know, so these things, these things, what, what we're really saying is we're saying, could this ever possibly be useful to me again in the future? Does it have any value whatsoever? Right. And if the answer to that is yes, then we keep it. And that that criteria is like the world's broadest criteria. Mm-hmm. Like broad, broad is the way and narrow is the gate. Like, well, this is the broad road. <laughs> what we need is the narrow road. And the narrow road says, look, does this item of clothing uh, bring me joy? Mm-hmm. Does it does it look great on me? Does it work well? Does it, does it, do I wear it often? Right. And if we use those questions, see, those are much narrower criteria, selective, mm-hmm. thoughtful. And so I think the first place to begin the essentialist journey is just to examine the criteria that we're using for our life. See, I right. think that the criteria a lot of people are listening to will be used. Is that the closet of our lives, we're not talking about closets, the closet of our life has become a stressful overstuffed place mm-hmm. where not only our own clothes go in there, but other people are stuffing their clothes into our closet all day long. Yep. So in that environment, so true. you leave we, and there's more. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, have you, is your, is your inbox ever got longer by the end of the day than it was at the beginning? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a joke, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Uh, Quicksand. Has mm-hmm. your to-do list ever got longer by the end of the day than before? I mean, this, this is, this the, I think it's sort of the challenge of our times is that is that it's 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 true for just about everyone everywhere. Yeah. So so what can we do? This this that we're talking about the closet of our lives and how to become more selective. Now that's not code for more selfish and it's not code for less love, but okay. it is it is about saying, look, I can't do it all. So what's the right thing that I ought to do? Where should I put my where should I put my limited resources today? Yes. Uh, and, and, and to pursue those things, you know, uh, it, it, and, and it, what's criteria we can use? We can just ask the question, is this the very best use of me? Mm-hmm. We can ask the question, if I'm going to serve someone, who's the most important person to serve right now? Right. If we are to serve them, we can ask the question, what is the best, what is the highest contribution I can make? If I, if I only have 10 minutes to serve that person, what's, what's the best thing I can do with that time? Right. What's the, what's the best use of my energy? What's the highest contribution I can make in that moment? This is the, the approach that I think this more selective, uh, what, what I might call the 90% rule. Okay. I'm glad you're going there. Cause I was going to say my assistant and I read through the book together after I read it. And that 90% rule helped us because I have way more opportunities than I have time available, even in speaking or 
uh, like you, you know, and like a lot of listeners, it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, like it's just way too much. And tell us about that 90% rule. We were at about 60 or 70%, I think. And she just schooled me on that and said, you need to get to 90%. So run us through that. That was, that was game changing. You know, if you had to rate every, every task or every opportunity that comes your way on a scale of one to 100, if something's only five out of 100, that, that, most people get that that's probably a no. Yeah. Uh, although, to be honest, there are definitely people who don't even know like, that to well, know. Well, that's pretty good, you know, 50%, well, it, you passed. Well, if you use that question, is could this do some good for someone, then 5% is a yes. Yeah. So it's not the wrong question, but we know that. We, 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 we know the question's more to do with what's your highest contribution got to be. Hmm. Uh, now, if you move up the scale, if you get an opportunity that's 20%, 30%, 50%, and now a lot more people are getting interested and getting pulled into it. I think the real problem, though, is where people get to 60, 70, 80 percent, where they go, look, it's a pretty good thing. This mm-hmm. is pretty good. So it's pretty good. I probably ought to be doing it. Yeah. And and it's a sense that's fine until you have more opportunities at the 60, 70, 80 percent level that you can do mm-hmm. or that you could do and still be healthy and wise. Yeah. So the answer, as someone reaches that point, as their, their life hits that level of success, is to say, look, it's only 90% or above. Just, mm-hmm. You know, if it's an 80%, it's still, it's still either a no or it's like, I'm really like not, I, I, am, I am seriously considering not doing that. Hey, this is your interview, but can I give a really concrete, quick example of that? I'd that, love it. That bit me the same year I read your book. So I had said yes, because we get lots of speaking engagements requests, and I would love to do them all. And I said yes to one that was, you know, I said no to most, but I looked at one, and it was, it was a B opportunity. It was a 60 or a 70%, not a 90%, and I said yes to it. And then literally four months later, I get a request. We were joking before we went to air that I always get invited to Silicon Valley and it gets canceled. Well, I got invited to go to Menlo Park, which you know <laughs> where that is, uh, yep. to teach John Ortberg's staff. Now, I have been reading his book for tw- books for 20 years, and I had to say no to that is not a 90%. That's a 99%. Like That would be like a dream invitation for me. I ended up saying no because I had said yes to something that was a 60 to 70% and the dates conflicted. Now I that's, just love it. That is, that's what happens, right? Because then the great opportunity comes along, happens financially. You, you did something with your money that was okay, and then a great opportunity comes along, but you've spent it. So uh, I love that 90% rule. It's been incredibly clarifying. And do you find with most people, the opportunities get greater if you stick to it? Like you feel like you're missing out but actually, you're creating greater value, and every year it gets better. Oh, I, I've I've found two things that are interesting about essentialism as I've continued to be striving to live it and to figure out how to apply it. The first is that, in a sense, in a sense, essentialism gets harder over time, mm. uh, and that's not because we get weaker, but because the opportunities get better. Right. So we are starting to say no to things that a year before we would have jumped at doing. Yes. Yeah. And so that's the first sort of, that's like kind of the paradox of essentialism is it kind of gets harder. And then this, this Halloween. Yeah. 
I finally went to do something that I've been thinking about doing for years and years. Right. So like since I was like, I don't know, but maybe 10 years old, hmm. when somebody mentioned to me, one of my brothers said to me, wouldn't it be so cool to own a Stormtrooper costume, like a real from Star Wars costume. Legit. The full reel from the movie. And ever since then, at some part of my subconscious or conscious psyche, I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> right? Yeah, of course. And, uh, and, and so year after year, you know, just somewhere in the background, I'm like, oh, that would be cool. Wouldn't that be good? That would be so fun. And every so often I look it up and, and it, they cost a thousand bucks. <laughs> gotcha. And, and uh, you, can, you can buy them, but that's how much they, that, that's how much they're going to set, set you back. And this year, Alan, I was thinking, well, you know, my kids really want to do something, maybe a Star Wars theme. And, and so I went, to the, I went to the store and I uh-huh. tried it on. And I'm standing there in the mirror looking at myself dressed in this Stormtrooper costume. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I just have this awareness. And to me, it's this beautiful like, little symbol. I'm like, oh, nope, I have no desire to buy a Stormtrooper costume anymore. Oh. Like, there's no, it, I have no interest in this. It's been sitting with me all this time like a nostalgic, <laughs> a nostalgic goal. And I don't, I don't need it. In fact, I don't even want it. I could have it, but I don't want it. And I just think to myself of how many Stormtrooper goals we have. Hmm. and senses of obligation and things that once were cool or once were good or someone mentioned it in passing and we were like wow yeah that's good and it became it went from being just a comment to to an expectation that we have and and in a similar way as uh, in, in a similar way as is is the law of moses had been, had, had got more and more uh, rules and expectations like sort of spiritual scar tissue hmm. Uh, you know, just kind of, sort of this, 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 the law around the law, right? The protection of the, the, the law itself. And, and I think our lives are like that, that we have mm. built up all sorts of expectations, right? The stormtrooper moments. And we, we can, what I'd love is that we can see them. We can train mm. ourselves to see them and say, yeah. does this matter anymore to me? Or is this out of date for you? I've made some pretty silly mistakes in my life. <laughs> In hindsight, before I learned the, the language that we're using today of the stormtrooper principle, right? The yeah. stormtrooper moment of just things that I got attached to that maybe for years and years I held on to. I was like, no, I'm going to do that one day. And some of them I've done. Right. And you sort of think, okay, well, why, why did you, why? Why was that <laughs> why so important? That? And, and so the ability to, to not just, not just to set goals, but to, uncommit from them, mm. you know, to, to, to unlearn. I mean, when, when we think so much about the idea of repentance, we've got to at least allow that a loss of repentance has to do with giving up something that wow. we wanted once. And that's not just, that's not just dark things. I think a lot of people listening to this do not desire dark things anymore. No. They desire good things. They desire the light. But even there, what are the good things that have become the stormtroopers of the, the stormtrooper costumes of our lives? Oh, that's such a good metaphor. Hey, I really want to honor your time. We've got like a minute or two left, and you're so generous to to give uh, our leaders your time today. But 
We're going to have to get better at saying no. One or two quick lightning tips on how to do that because we're terrible at that in the church world, as you know. <laughs> how do you say no without like losing all your friends? Um, I think the, the, the first thing we do is, I mean, we've got to learn how to negotiate this. It's mm. not about saying yes or saying no. Okay. Those, two ex- those two extremes both get us into trouble. Um, I think that w- what we have to learn is to bring trade-offs into the conversation. So, for example, if somebody asks you to take on a new project, one answer is, uh, is, is oh, yes, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, which of the other items I'm working on should I deprioritize? Yes. This is one approach. Uh, the second approach, similar idea, is bringing trade-offs into the conversations. I was once asked to take on a new project. And I said, again, yes, I'm happy to do that. I can either do the four or five projects you've asked me to do, you know, each of them averagely well or good, uh, or I can do sort of one or two things really well. W- right. Which would you prefer I did? And in that case, they came back to me and they said, no, actually, there's a clear winner. This hmm. is the one. And, uh, and I spent the next year working on that single project and we made a breakthrough of success. Wow. Um, so, so I think that this is the tip I would give. D- don't, don't get it too polar, polarized into yes, no, it's, it's let bring trade-offs into the conversation so that we can have a negotiation about the reality of our lives and, and, and bring to, bring to attention the, this, this eternal law, which is that you can either do a few things superbly well or many things averagely well. Mm-hmm. And, and let that truth be present in the conversation as you then discuss what to do. That's so good. And if you're the senior leader, sometimes you have to have those conversations with yourself, right? Because <laughs> nobody's telling you what to do. You're making it up and you're like, okay, am I going to do this one thing well or five things mediocre? Greg, this is great. The book is called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. I would encourage every leader to pick up a copy. You've just got to read it. And it's just every chapter is chock full of just great, great practical tips that can be so helpful. Really allowed me to do two podcasts and hold down a job and a bunch of other stuff as well. So, Greg, people are going to want to know more. What's the easiest place to find you online and where can they learn more? I think just going to gregmcewen.com, G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N.com, and they, they can find some of the, some of the, the ways that we can engage and, uh, and hope to, to, to be part of the essentialism uh, movement. Hey, this has been fantastic. Thank you so, so much for building into so many leaders today. I am really, really grateful, Greg, and I know so are they. Thank you. Well, I hope that was helpful. I got to tell you, Essentialism, one of my favorite books I've ever read. I would so encourage you to pick up a copy if you haven't, or maybe, you know, it's been a couple of years, dust off your copy and have a look at it. Uh, I'm all about making 2017 the best year you've ever had. And remember, the High Impact Leader course comes back starting next Monday for just a few days. Then we're going to close down registration again. So if you haven't jumped on the wait list, go to thehighimpactleader.com and make sure this is the year where you finally get a day off when you're supposed to be off, when you actually do what you're best at when you're at your best. We'll tell you all about that. So just go to thehighimpactleader.com and jump on the wait list there and the course will be open next Monday. Hey, if you found today's episode to be helpful, could you share it? You can share it on social media, leave a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe. Um, I would just love for you to be a subscriber. We're going to do some bonus episodes from time to time like we did at the beginning of the month. That way you won't miss a thing. 
Next week, I am back with somebody who actually goes to our church, Connexus Church, Rose Meter, Rose Zacharias Meter. She has her own podcast in Canada, well, I guess globally. Um, and Rose is one of the best people I know at inviting her friends, particularly her unchurched friends, even her friends who are far, far, far from faith, into a relationship with Jesus and into church. And I feel like it is a master class on how to do personal evangelism. We had a fascinating, long-ranging conversation here in my studio, and you're going to hear that next week if you subscribe. Also coming up, we've got David Kinneman, uh, we've got Mark Batterson, and a whole lot more. So again, if you subscribe, nothing ever gets missed, and that's the good part. Big shout out to EA Help. Thank you for helping so many leaders, and if you need some help administratively this year, make sure you drop by eahelp.com. Uh, I'm so excited to see leaders really realize their potential. And we're back next Tuesday with a fresh episode. Can't wait to hang out then. Thanks so much for listening. And I really hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.